if an ancestor has experienced the, the extreme kind of trauma that you would experience if you witnessed the murdering of your family members, somehow that gets, uh, my understanding is that gets registered in, in the genes and, um, and can, can ripple down many generations. And, uh, you know, I grew up with a very over, protective mother and I often joke with her that she's like the father in Philip Roth's novel Indignation who's constantly checking up on his son and making sure he's okay and is is frantic and nervous about him and um, um, so I think that anxiety is a natural outcome of uh, a family that has experienced uh, trauma for sure. Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Today is such an exciting episode because I am joined with the one and only Dr. Janet Balakian. I want to be as formal as possible at first. Oh, no, no. Well, Just, because, yeah, Jan, no. well okay. because Jan, I want everyone to know I met Jan in 2011 at Kane University, and she was the professor in the English department who really opened my eyes to why I need to be at Kane and that she was going to take me under her wing and take me under her wing. She did because I'm in my last year of my dissertation at Stony Brook and Jan, I really credit that to you. So, Oh no, Jan, I say well, it's wait. all about Andrew. Well, and, and Jan, I have to be honest, to be honest <laughs> but go ahead. But Jan is a prolific scholar of oh. Arthur Miller, which is true. Because I know Jan might say she's not, but she is. And she also wrote a really great book that I read as an undergrad about the playwright Wendy Wasserstein. So all of this is to say Jan has a new play that's coming out at Kane on Zoom, which is great for the whole audience because we have people who listen to us, Jan, across the globe so they can all tune in. So your new play is Dreams on Fire and... I am so thrilled for you because I remember being with you in the Hamptons on the beach and going through different ideas about your draft. So what inspired Dreams on Fire? Let's start there. Okay, so can I first pay tribute to okay, you? Sure, of and course. I want to thank Andrew for being one of those brilliant, brilliant students at Kane University, who's gone on to become my teacher. Oh. And really, I just happened to be there to watch Andrew take off. But you combine scholarship with social justice, with being a public scholar, with entrepreneurial skills, like creating this podcast, and um, you're really shaping the next generation of college mm -hmm. teachers. And well, that means a lot, Jan. And, and you're and a devoted scholar. listener. Jan yes. has listened oh, to many I, I, episodes. I was blown away by the Sylvia Plath uh, biographers that you had interviewed. And so I just feel really oh. lucky 
luckier than you to have met you and your parents that fall at Kane's open house. Yeah. So your first question was- Well, what uh, inspired, what led- when did you know you were going to write Dreams on Fire and center on the, well, you'll get into it, but the large, large- topic of trauma and the Armenian genocide. Right, so it didn't start that way. It started as a family summer house conflict play that wanted to address the political division in the country uh, even before the 2016 election. And I found myself writing lectures instead of drama. And as I continued to write, the family in that play developed and became uh, uh, about a son who was struggling with depression and anxiety as he was trying to make his way through college. And so then I started writing a play about that that family member, that college student struggle with mental health. That's what I wanted to write. But in the process, images from the Armenian genocide kept appearing and colleagues like, and I want to pay tribute to um, Marsha Robinson, who is uh, our Shakespearean scholar at Kane, who recently retired, and Joseph Beagle, who is a developer of new plays, uh, read it and felt that the Armenian thread was the more interesting piece and that the play should be about that and not just a straight up mental health play. And I really fought it. And I remember actually dropping my head on my desk and saying, but I need to write the mental health play because I feel that it's the root of so many problems. And uh, and it was difficult for me to break away from from that so I though I listened to them uh, especially because they have such expertise Mm -hmm. and then my task became welding together the two stories the mental health play with the Armenian genocide play and and then somewhere in there I learned about the transmission of trauma on NPR uh, which I listen to uh, like uh, the way I breathe, I always have it on. Yeah. And I, I heard Rachel Yehuda, who's a neuroscientist at Mount Sinai, explain uh, the transmission of trauma across generations. Is that the idea, and, Jan, of epigenetics? Yes. Yeah, so that's the term that they use. And uh, another neuroscientist, Dr. Eric Hollander, in New York told me that it's a mature field and it's well established and that um, trauma from our ancestors can be transmitted across many generations. Mm. And Mm. so that unknowingly became the play. So this truly is an example of how by writing you discover what you wanna say. I had never dreamed of, of writing about it. Um, yeah. well, when, so, um, when did yeah. you actually start writing? Like what year do you remember when you, I think it was 20, I think it was when you entered graduate school. Was it 2014, 2014, 2014, 2014. Okay. Yeah. Cause I remember we were, we, um, laughed together about how we're on the same journey. Like your play is following my dissertation timeline. 
Yeah. Like the way that, or my career of my PhDs yes, following exactly. your plays process. And, but I think that goes to a question that so many out there who are playwrights listening or who are scholars, who are just enthusiasts of theater. Um, the actual process of writing a play like can take many years, right? Like it's usually not a quick turnaround. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, even if you're doing it full time, which those of us who teach are not doing it full time, we do it in the summers. Um, it's a, a many year process, but every, I guess every play is different um, in terms of the amount of time it takes. Um, yeah. Well, and Jan, I know she might not tell you, but I know a lot about Jan's infamous Arthur Miller interview that you actually um, got to interview him about his process. Like, do you remember any yeah. of his advice? Um, so we talked more about the content of his, of his new plays at the time than we did about his process. But I did have the audacity of sliding my student play under his New York apartment door. Uh, this must have been 1990 or 1990. Yeah, this must have been 1989 actually. And we were talking about his plays of that era. Um, we were talking about his eighties plays, the, the American clock and um, those plays. And uh, he wrote me back kindly and, uh, and, and uh, he said that any writer must find from with himself or herself um, the urge to write, but to know that it's difficult in this country to, to get a, a play produced. And mm -hmm. so he wanted to be encouraging and also cautionary. And he was so gracious in, in even reading it and getting back to me. And it actually was kind of the seed for this play in a student form and so well, yeah. what was your student play i don't need i don't it know was, anything about the anything student play about that yes yeah, so let's see uh it was oh it was inspired by a poem that my brother wrote um and um about the armenian genocide in which uh, my grandmother has a story when she was escaping from the genocide. Um, they slept in a church in Marseille and they could not sleep at night because they were afraid that the ceiling would open and bodies would fall from clouds. And the play came to be titled, The Ceiling Will Open. And it dealt with um, a brother and a sister discovering the Armenian genocide. So I almost forget about that because it was so long ago and it, it uh, won a little prize at Cornell and probably no one else was writing plays that year, but um, it, it just had a little reading, a concert reading. And, um, and that was the, I guess, now that I look back, it was the seed for this one. Yeah, do you ever think about having that performed again or is it kind of just in your past and mm, uh yeah it's it's always a turbulent story about trying to get something produced and at the time i guess it was the year after or maybe it was several years after uh an armenian organization tried to produce it and it never happened but it's really a student play i didn't have an understanding quite uh, of of um, how to how to um, 
write a full-blown play. So I think um, it maybe served its purpose as a student play. Well, so you brought up your family, and I know a lot of listeners might have heard the name Balakian, which is so well established with your family's history and opening up about, well, I, I know that on our team, Jaren, one of our, our marketing director, she said, Andrew, you need to ask Jan about her grandfather. Cause apparently your grandfather wrote a text of testimony. Is that true of the Armenian genocide? Yeah, it's interesting because usually people ask about Nona, who was the book review editor for the New York Times in the 40s, from the 40s through the early 70s. But my um, my great uncle wrote a book called Armenian Golgotha, which is his eyewitness account of the Armenian genocide. And he was um, a, an archbishop and um, disguised himself as a German um, train conductor and um, survived the genocide and came back to write about it in a memoir that was only in Armenian until my brother collaborated with a translator and translated it. And um, in fact, it's interesting you mention it because I did not want to touch uh, the territory that my brother had written about in Black Dog, uh, which is my grandmother's claim against foreign governments. So what I did was I walked over to my great uncle's book and I lifted his account of April 24, which is the day, the night that Armenian professionals were arrested and taken to prison. And um, I literally typed out the words that um, Krikor Balakian wrote in his memoir of the terror of that night. Wow. Yeah. Well, and um, your brother, Peter Balakian, he wrote a book called Black Dog of Fate, just for, I actually am listening to, in pieces, his audiobook because he performs it. And it's very powerful hearing from your brother's voice. But, you know, and if you're not comfortable going there, Jan, please. Oh, no. I don't want to push boundaries, but not at all. I am not curious, at all. like, as a family, because of all of this, mm-hmm. like your great uncle talk, like, having testimony written. Right. It's interesting because from Holocaust studies, a lot of, or those who survive a genocide, um, they usually don't talk. Like there's this, right, generational trauma that carries and it takes time to unpack it. Right. But it's interesting that your great uncle actually like wrote it down, like actually wanted to talk about it. Well, that happened, uh, let's see, after I learned about his testimony much later than my grandmother, who uh, I just think it's amazing. Here she was, a refugee who escaped with two two daughters, saw her family killed, and came here in 19, well, the genocide was in 1915. In 1920, she submits a claim called a claim against foreign governments and nothing happens at the time because there had not yet been established the UN convention's definition of genocide coined by Raphael Lemkin, uh, which is the intent to destroy systematically a group of people based on their ethnicity. So 
So my first learning about the genocide was through the claim that Peter republished um, in, his, in Black Dog. And um, he's trying to have that book made into a film. I hope it happens. Oh, wow. And so then I later learned about the, my great uncle um, after that. And um, so, yeah, um, and that's a big book that he's written. Uh, so those were the two. So it comes from both, both sides documented it in wow. different ways. Well, and I know personally how close you are to your mother, who is such a sweet person, kind, sweet, intelligent. She's a tough one. She's yeah, a well, tough one. but, you know, says it like it is. And being from Jersey, I appreciate that. Um, but I'm curious, how did she respond? Or have, did you have a lot of conversations growing up with both of your right. parents about the genocide? Right. So I think that the whole reason that Black Dog needed to be written is because that generation, um, my parents' generation, which would be the equivalent of your great, your grandparents' generation, uh, was completely silent. And so that next generation, those, let's see, born in the 50s, uh, needed to crack it open. And so uh, that's what what Peter did. So it is about breaking the silence, which is now the normal thing to do in this generation. Yeah. Well, so your play, which I've told you, and I know it's going to have such a ripple effect of power. It uh, will. It's manifesting, right? We're manifesting it here. And Dreams on Fire, that title, that symbolism. I mean, you just told me about the student play that I never knew. And there was a dream in there, like this dream oh, right, symbolism right. of, you said bodies falling from the sky, from the clouds. Mm -hmm. So is dreams, like what's that power of dreams? With yeah, the dreams, you know, it's, yeah. so it came about in two ways. Uh, the, uh, the burning of churches, and I was listening to Katie Mellowa's song, Dreams on Fire, which I wanted to be the, the theme song. And she's actually of Georgian descent, but is, uh, lives in London. And um, so the two of those came together, listening to her music and then um, the image of a kid having nightmares about things going up in flames. Those two came together. Wow. Well, and I mean, I think we have to acknowledge it. We're recording right with the Ukraine. Right. Russia. Yes. Crisis, war. I mean, but how the Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom and sure. independence. And it, it's... It's frighteningly in the zeitgeist right now of that, like actually seeing the conflicts with images. And um, I mean, do you feel that, how do, well, how do you process what's happening right now? Like, does it speak to themes that you've written about? Oh, not really, because ironically, what was the Soviet Union became um, a haven 
for Armenia once it was decimated. So that without, you know, who knows, without Russia or the Soviet Union, I never know what to call it, Soviet Union at the time, uh, you know, Armenian, Ar Armenia might not have had a, a, a place to call home for a period of time. So what's happening now is completely different. This is, um, you know, uh, this is why I say mental health needs to be addressed because you have a crazy guy, Putin, um, uh, wanting to um, kind of be Hitler here. So not, not really much connection at all to the Armenian situation. Yeah, well, so the mental health aspect, because I know we had so many conversations about college mental health and like how you were going to represent. So your lead character, right? Aram mm -hmm. um, is 20 and is in mm -hmm. college. And well, how would you describe his conflict? Right. Cause I always remember when we read a play conflict and when conflict? I'm teaching my Broadway musical course, I What's always say, what is yeah. the conflict? And it's usually at the end of act one. So um, what what yeah. is this conflict that he's well, he he with? wants to. Yeah, uh, he's having a breakdown during exam week, which I've witnessed all too many times. And um, he's he, he doesn't know what, what's causing it or what it's about. And actually, it coincides with the Turkish coup uh, of 2016, but which most people I'm sure didn't follow. But um, he so his uh, want or need is to find out why he's having this breakdown. And he happens to be staying with his grandmother that summer. His parents are away. Oh, his parents have broken up. Right. And his mother is a doctor who's away in Armenia doing medical relief. So we never meet the parents. So it's a and the last thing I wanted to do was write a grandmother grandson play because Peter had done that in Black Dog. But really, um, the grandmother's based more on my uh, observations about my mother's hypervigilance. And um, so, yeah. That's well, that. would you say anxiety plays a role as a mental health issue in your play? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I, I, uh, so what I learned about epigenetics, and again, I hadn't intended this, was that it can be passed down. And um, if an ancestor has experienced the, the extreme kind of trauma that you would experience if you witnessed the murdering of your family members, somehow that gets, uh, my understanding is that gets registered in, in the genes and, um, and can, can ripple down many generations. And, uh, you know, I grew up with a very over protective mother. And I often joke with her that she's like the father in Philip Roth's novel, Indignation, who's constantly checking up on his son and making sure he's okay and is, is frantic and nervous about him. And um, um, so I think that anxiety is a natural outcome of uh, a family that has experienced uh, trauma, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's actually something that um, my family, or at least I'm, I feel like maybe being the only child or where I am right now in the family line, the tree mm -hmm. that like, I've seen how my grandmoms both, um, 
went through anxious periods, but like one had undiagnosed depression that caused my dad's mother to cause, caused her to get very frustrated because she wasn't being treated mm. for depression. Mm -hmm. And then my mom's mother, you know, thankfully is still alive, um, 96. And wow. um, I need to see her soon, I miss her. Um, but also had has OCD tendencies, like family members, my mom doesn't tell her certain things because she knows she's gonna fester on it. Like that's a big word in our family is festering. Oh, that's a good and, word, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but like I started, you know, I've researched my family ancestors and realized that there's Jewish roots and there's no discussion about how certain family members came to America. And I really feel there's something intuitively telling me that there's trauma buried there. And like, there's a reason why they don't discuss how they got to America or even like what they were fleeing from. And I, it's interesting though to see like what you're talking about epigenetics that's such an important field of study and yeah i hope there's more research done right i mean it's it's always hard to know where environment ends and the um inside begins hmm. I, I, yeah but absolutely um that it, that would make sense yeah well and how do you how do you pronounce um Aram's grandmother's name, just because I want oh, you to say it. Yeah, um, well, so to be funny, <laughs> I, 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 and it's also based on uh, having heard this, her Ripsime for, for short is, she says, call me Rip. And- um, So what is the uh, meaning of her Ripsime, Jan? So she was a martyr, a martyr. Wow, okay. Uh, so is that why but, you went there with the name? Actually, no, to be honest, I was looking for some, uh, for a laugh in, a, in what has otherwise some serious uh, material and having her name be Rip for short, I thought was kind of fun and funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> oh yeah. There you go. Well, and the genres, because you're right. There's so much depth psychologically. We have mental health. We have the Armenian genocide. There's a lot of um, intense discussions, but there's so much comedy, especially with the grandmother, with Haripsime and Aram, her grandson. Did you, did you know you really needed to have a comedic element mm -hmm. because of these oh. intense discussions? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, I just think it that's one of the things that, that I get for free. I don't know. I, well, my struggle is I love to write 
lines and funny lines, I'm more challenged with plot structure. So uh, one of my favorite lines is when he comes home from college and he's having a beer and he says, um, you know, it's called happy hour because after one hour, everybody's miserable. Um, so I just wanted, I wanted that. <laughs> I just funny. wanted that kind of, uh, um, I wanted people to recognize their own situations. And I think everybody would. Yeah. Well, so for playwrights out there, and I know I'm so curious about this question. What is it like? So you have your play written. Now you're trying to find that key ingredient, which is how is it going to be performed for an audience? Whoa, Can you walk us a, through that? What was that? What's the rocky, process? It's a rocky, rocky, rocky road. And um, see, if you're famous, you're just responsible for writing it and someone else deals with the production. And that's the, the gold that you're, chasing. It, um, I have yet to figure out how a production happens, but I'm fortunate to have uh, encountered Nora Armani from the Armenian community, who is a professional director or writer, or first actually uh, actress and, and now director. And so, so she's um, directing this reading and will be guiding me in the process that happens between the, the reading of this and the and a production. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, you know, for all who, like me, we want to see the Zoom reading, um, you know, check out the show notes. I have a link to the flyer, but also our social media, we're sharing, don't worry, Jan, the flyer is going to be everywhere with this interview. So I'm so excited to actually just hear it read. And that's an exciting development stage, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming, is it Playwrights Horizons? Is that an independent theater company in Manhattan? That yeah, that would be my dream. That's where... Uh, Wendy Wasserstein and, and all the writers of uh, who began mm. their careers all launched it there. And I don't know how to crack open that door, but I do. Well, oh, I will link to them. them? We'll link, them? Yeah, well, we will link to them on social media. So Playwrights Horizons, there's a there's a few others, right? Um, well, let me explain, I guess, if you don't know what an organization like Playwrights Horizons is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jan, because this is your field. No, um, no, I, I will learn from you. Yeah. Well, no, because I remember we've seen a few productions. I think it was, who wrote the play? Um, was it called John or what was the play about a bed and breakfast? Do you remember oh, that, that? That was on Broadway, wasn't it? I don't know. I thought it was one in one of the independent, like one of- Signature theater. Signature theater. It was signature. Yes, yes, yes. Annie um, Baker. I think that was an Annie Baker. Yes, play. thank you. Yeah. Who well, is well known for a play I really like, The Flick. I like The Flick. Um, mm -hmm. I will hold my, uh, I I will hold my judgment of John, um, but I really like how. Um, well, I like how they take a chance, right? That's what you want. You want them to do new, innovative work, but. 
what would happen? Would they contact you, Jan, and say, Jan, we want you to be on you. We want you to be in repertoire here. Is that what happens? Oh yeah. No, it doesn't happen like that. No. So what I learned, I, I, uh, contacted, who did I learn this from? I contacted David Felshu from, from Cornell. And, and oddly, I wasn't really involved in productions. I was just studying text in graduate school. And I asked him, well, how do you get a play, um, let's see, published? Because once it's published, then anybody can do it. And he told me that the road to publication is that you need to get a production in New York and even a bad review, he said, uh, will help uh, uh, get published. And then once you're published, then, then your play's available for anyone to do. So I asked him whether a college production would help and he said, no, it needed to be, um, uh, I don't know if he said specifically New York or it needs to be a professional production. And it has to, so it has to have critical, it has to have reviews. Has to, yes. Okay. But like, what happens? Well, you know, let's dream it up here. What would you like to happen after the Zoom reading of Dreams on so Fire? What, so ideally, uh, a production in New York in some form that would then have a review, which would then make me eligible to submit it for publication. And the, the big publisher who publishes new plays is Theater Communications Group, which is mm -hmm. part of American Theater Magazine. And Okay, is that uh, similar to Samuel French? It's different, Samuel oh. French um, I, I, Samuel French used to publish the editions that I think actors used, but I've noticed Emily Mann, David Lindsay Abair, the plays that I admire have all been published by TCG. Hmm. So, so the, yeah, here's what's the, uh, an important question is, do, do we invite them to a reading when there will probably still be problems being worked out or do we wait and invite those kinds of um, audiences to a production, yeah. Well, so we're back to the um, age-old um, adage of networking, right? Like okay. networking never goes away, that's... And that's your forte. Yeah, but I think what's so exciting to me is, again, your director's name, her name is... Nora Armani, yeah. Nora Armani, so... Um, I'm hoping that our, an Armenian theater group or artistic organization in New York City, you know, they take a chance and they want this to be put on off Broadway. I mean, I see it. I see it happening. I see us sitting in the seats. Well, um, it would be nice. I I don't know if there is a current uh, Armenian theater group that's that's functioning, the, the Armenian Dramatic Alliance, whom I contacted, they used to have a William Soroyan prize and that is now um, not happening at the moment. Maybe it's a funding issue, but it seems uh, like it, uh, I haven't been able to reach a, um, a, a group that's working together, but through them, I learned of Nora. Yeah, and well, and 
how has um the actors right because you know i've acted and that's my background like i'm always curious how have they reacted especially with mental health and in such a innovative and urgent message that you don't see on the stage a lot like i only remember seeing next to normal the musical that had um i think it was manic depression but that the um, mother has but right you don't really see that on the stage in a very complicated way. So what was it like for the actual young actor who plays Aram, say, to embody that psyche? Well, I have yet to see it because I worked with um, Kane students over the summer because it was an SPF, but they, they then needed uh, SPF students partnering with faculty then they needed to leave for the King Conservatory. So then I teamed up with uh, Nora and she's casting professionals. So I'll better be able to answer that after the reading. Yeah. Are they equity actors? Yeah. So this is another problem. Another problem that arose is um, equity does not allow recordings. So for this reading, we have to go with non-equity. Yeah, yeah. But see, this is the behind the scenes. There's so many yeah. stipulations. So and... many stipulations. And then I learned that uh, Kane has this very specific agreement with equity that precludes anyone uh, from the outside coming to Kane and working with equity. So that was another reason. So I think the fact that it became a Zoom is a blessing on all accounts because it's more manageable. It's COVID ending. We know we're at the end, I hope, of COVID. So it will be a good um, launching ground and I'm forever grateful. And I wanna make a point to say this to to Kane's Office of Research and Sponsored Programs because had they not granted me both release time and um, the, uh, the students partnering with faculty, this, would not have arisen and so i'm very grateful and i want to thank them for their generosity and i hope that if this gets produced that i will uh, be able to advertise kane's sponsorship of of this play yeah well okay so while you're not a playwright like while you're not being a playwright right because you are a playwright um, well, well, to be yeah, determined. Well, to be determined. well, you've also written a screenplay. Um, yeah. And what is right. the film um, called that you wrote? Yeah. So you can see the thread of my interest. It's called Everyone's Depressed. And uh, now that I think about it, it was my response to a musical that you'll love and I love Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You. Um, in that film, everyone's falling in and out of love. And in this one, it's so long ago that I wrote it. Everyone is falling in and out of um, uh, uh, feeling despair. And so, uh, but it ends up being a romantic comedy. But yeah, that was an early screenplay. And actually a couple scenes from there show up in different ways in um, in the play, Dreams on Fire. Yeah, well, and it's not all the time where a creative writer, especially someone doing theatrical works, is a full-time professor, right? So how, because this will help me, Jan, how do you balance that? Like, is this, 
is it doable? I mean, you are doing it. Is it? Well, what's yeah, the I advice? Mean, most people do not make a living doing creative writing. So I think most creative artists are teachers. So I think it's the norm. Um, what I do know is that the brain for teaching is almost the exact opposite of the brain for creative work in that when you teach, you want to explain things. And that's that will kill a piece of art. So my problem has always been to weed out all of my explanations and my didacticism uh, because that's not what you want in an in an artwork. Yeah, and it's very different than when you write scholarly criticism, right? Like to me, that has more of a through line with teaching than like when you're writing a play. Oh, yeah, it's. There's it's the opposite. It's the opposite. You want to. It's the other side of the brain. Yeah. Well, and are you currently teaching your playwriting course? I teach it every year, except this year. I'm not because I had one course off to make this reading happen. Oh, that's good. Well, but it must be so thrilling. I feel for your students to sit in on a playwriting seminar with an actual, like someone who's actually in the development stage well, of the play. Like that's such a I treat. Mean, I don't know about that. I, I, it's a challenge to, to teach playwriting. You can, uh, I'm still learning it myself. And as uh, everyone says, each play has its own demands and you, you learn what that play needs at that particular time for that particular story. Um, probably most of my students don't know, um, but I do want to shout out that students will earn uh, credit on their transcripts for zooming in because, um, oh, I do want to make a point that following the reading, faculty will be discussing the issues in the play. So Dennis yeah. Klein from our masters in Holocaust and genocide studies, um, which is so spectacular of a field. It is. It is. And then we have a graduate program. Don Marks um, heads uh, what's called the PsyD program that trains uh, psychologists to to go on and uh, uh, be practitioners in uh, psychology. And uh, let's see, Don Marks and um, thinking of uh, there. Oh, then there will be someone from our counseling center. Wow. And so this um, is truly interdisciplinary. And like, interdisciplinary. This is, this is, and that's so actually a, how Aram yeah. in the play, that's how he gets rid of his incompletes is that he writes this interdisciplinary play. Yeah. Oh, so he, wow. Like, so uh, writes an interdisciplinary paper, not play. Oh, oh, oh. But um, it's so interesting, though, how life is imitating art. Yeah, for sure. Or I guess it could work the other way, too. Does art imitate way. life? Oh, no, we're in a chicken and an egg situation. Well, but yeah, actually, someone pointed out to me, I think it was Link Conkle of the College of New Jersey, who's an amazing reader of plays. He said, well, I don't know that we that a student could get rid of four incompletes by writing one paper but in this play i think he does yeah well suspension of disbelief <laughs> yeah. right sometimes it's necessary um well i have been so so 
excited to talk with you, Jan. I loved every minute of every course, truly. And Jan can attest, I loved yeah. everything we Andrew, read in your course. The classes that were most exciting were the ones Andrew took over. Oh, but I do want to say something about the incomplete, which I find to be the grand metaphor. Um, but I know it will not be the case uh, of your dissertation. But when I think of the incomplete, I think of all the students who've had incompletes over my years. And um, and and in some way, I, I I like to say jokingly that all of us have an incomplete in one way or another. Mm. And um, uh, that's how I was thinking about the, the whole concept of the incomplete, which is the through line of the play, if you want to call it that, is that he's trying to get rid of his incomplete so he can get back into college. Yeah, well, and something I'm now focused on a lot, especially through therapy is, um, like through my therapy discussions last year, is when you know you have all these balls in the air and you're trying to balance, just not letting them all impact you at once. Like just letting I think them. You're pretty good. You're you're yeah. you're the best I know at um, um, what's the best word? Juggling or um, dividing up your time because you make time for your scholarship, for your public scholarship, for your writing. You do it all, and well, and for yourself, you need self care too. Is... Well, yeah, yeah, you're good at all of that. I tend not to be the best at balancing, to be honest, as as you know. Um, and, um, yeah. Yeah. But so. I, well, to conclude and end, I thought this would be a little fun. It's something Jan doesn't know the behind the scenes here is, you know, every guest I have, they have a few guided questions. So, right. We can mm -hmm. make sure we deliver everything to the audience, but if you will indulge me, Jan, I'd like to play a little game with you. Okay. Okay. So. Don't worry, I'm not going to throw questions at you rapid fire, but I want to know because you are a scholar, you have written creatively, you've read a vast amount of literature. Um, not enough, not well, enough. But no, I you have. have you've of, seen, I have a lot of books on my bucket list. Okay, yeah. well, you've seen so many musicals, so many plays. I am curious about some of your favorites. So here we go, Jan. Okay. This is the ivory tower boiler room corner. Is what is your favorite musical that you've ever seen in person? You know, what's interesting is that I have not seen that many musicals, but I'm a big fan of West Side Story. Did you see the new uh, adaptation? I have not, it's on my list. It, did you like it? Oh, I think it's really good. Mm -hmm. Better than the Leonard Bernstein? Um, I think it's, I like it a little better than the 50s version. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love, um, I like the Maria a lot. Rachel okay. Zegler. Um, well, especially because Natalie Wood was not Latina. So that's kind of, you know, it's definitely a very authentic West Side Story the okay. new one i um, remember i re well i i remember loving rent when i saw it yeah i just saw that with my students um because they were so on lucky. tour so yeah. you remember seeing rent did you see that on i Broadway? do remember seeing rent yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe what 10 15 15 years ago or so 
Okay. Now the harder one, because you said you haven't seen it. You didn't see as many musicals, but you've seen a lot of plays. Um, Yeah, well. What what is the play that just, it sticks out so vividly when you were in the audience? Do you remember that moment? Well, this is going to sound cliched, but it's true. It's Death of a Salesman. And one of the things I had uh, jotted down in thinking about the interview is that having studied the structure of that place so carefully and and the way Miller uses expressionism for the flashbacks um, really served me well in writing this play so salesman uh, hands down um, um, you know I'm gosh I'm a product of those 40s plays um, but all my sons um, let's see hold on here um, uh, I would have, um, I, I'll keep thinking, but I mean. Did you ever uh, see any August Wilson play on Broadway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Piano Lesson's one of my favorites. Piano Lesson. Yeah, I love August Wilson. Um, um, let's see, Fiddler, you asked me about musicals. Yeah. Fiddler, I love, yeah. Yeah, no, I loved seeing Fiddler on the Roof, the revival. How about, did you ever see, Um. um oh, Oh, did you ever see a Tennessee Williams play on Broadway? Yeah, I was going to say Glass Menagerie would be up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought, wait, did you see and the one with Sally Harley. Field? Uh, no. Okay, I saw that. She's so, she was really good. Um, But how about Shakespeare? Do you remember a Broadway Shakespeare experience? Yeah, let me think. A Broadway Shakespeare. I will say you saw the new Macbeth is coming. Yeah, I did see that. That might stayed. be what we have to see together, Jan. Yeah, I would I'll love see to. it with you with Daniel Craig yeah, and Ruth yeah, Mega. That would be great. Yeah, that would be great. I, I do remember I saw the King Lear that had come out a few years ago. Christopher um, Plummer? No, no. Um, on Broadway, it was, I'll have to look it up, but. Um, Not Christopher Plummer. No, no. It was with um, a prominent female actress. Um, Oh, I'll look it up uh, <laughs> as we're talking. Also, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, um, I would say also Julie Harris and Christopher Plummer's Doll's House um, mm. is one of my Wait, you saw, Wow, you saw Christopher Plummer in a Doll's House? Um, on, on, well, the, the, um, they, they made it into film. I mean, it's a film of the play. Mm. Okay, okay. Yeah, that would be one of my favorites. Okay. Um, wait, hold on. No, the keep Terrence going. McNally, yeah. The Terrence McNally one that we saw. Oh, that was Mothers, Mothers and, Sons. and Sons. That was Mothers very good. Yeah. I think that was with Tyne Daly. I think so. Mothers and Sons yeah. we saw. How about Angels one. in America? Did you Angels see that when it opened? I have to say, I would like to see that again because I felt like when I saw it, it was so long ago. Um, I didn't appreciate it enough. And um, I'm an admirer of, of uh, Tony Kushner. I would love to see that again. Yeah, well, okay. And then gossip, Jan. You know, yes. I like some theater gossip. Yes. Do you, re- do you have any encounter where you remember meeting someone who our audience here would be blown away by? Like some actor or celebrity that you just happened to meet through your network you mean at harris 
Oh, you met Ed Harris? Well, he lived down the street from me and is my brother's best friend. But I'm trying to think Miller, Ed Harris. Um, um, and then one of the things was growing up because my aunt was a book review editor, she would have these literary soirees where I met Eudora Welty and and William Soroyan and writers that probably this generation does not read. So I'm trying to think who else. Um, uh, I thought maybe you were going for the Ed Harris, an actor or a writer? No, anyone. This is up to you. Like anyone who. Oh, oh I thought it was someone you no, knew. No, no, or... no, no. I don't know. I'm just, I'm curious for what you're going to indulge us. Oh, uh, us in. oh, let's see. So the, the interviews were with Wendy Wasserstein. Um, Chris Durang, uh, oh, I love Chris. Well, I would say, of all the people, of, of all the people I've had the honor to meet, Miller would be up there. You said he was uh, so kind, like such a yeah, nice, yeah, he really man. was pretty amazing. He really was. Oh, I do have a good story, yes, please, about that, and we might as well document it. So, this is uh, 1989, and I'm interviewing him in his New York place it's a little pad on the upper east side and i to thank him i asked him if i could take him to an armenian restaurant there's no oh. currently no no armenian restaurant at the time there was one and um uh it was near the 59th street bridge and so we went at lunchtime and I was surprised that he took me up on it but i i uh, i caught him early, late in his life and so uh we get there and the doors are locked and um i i pound on the door and miller opens it and it finally opens and and uh the maitre d comes and he says well we're rehearsing for dinner tonight um and i said well i've got arthur miller here and so the doors opened and we sat down so they opened it just for um i guess the miller and we had this shish kebab dinner and these belly dancers were rehearsing for the evening dinner and um so i have this image of you know miller biting into his kebab and these belly dancers dancing around him and it, it was kind of it was a classic i mean i don't it was an unusual thing and so that there was that and the other one was when I then came to do the second interview in Connecticut, uh, uh, there was a lightning storm and he uh, asked if, if uh, uh, I wanted to stay in the guest room because it was maybe dangerous to drive or whatever. And I should have said yes, but of course I was embarrassed and had, uh, so I, I left. So those are my two Miller stories. Beyond that- wow. um, Well, that's I a lot. I mean, Arthur Miller, with Jambalakian eating shish kebabs oh and belly dancers. I mean, I don't think yeah, you can top funny. that, Jen. I think that's something, yeah. Wow. I, uh, I have, uh, <laughs> I tend to st both stumble on good luck and bad luck like everybody else. And uh, those were the good luck times for sure. Well, Jan, this has meant so much. I oh, really I loved interviewing you and everyone, can watch Jan's Dreams on Fire Zoom reading. What date is it, Jan? April 27 at five o'clock. And it will be recorded 
I believe because that's why we're doing um, non-equity. Yeah. Good, good. So we can, if you can tune in live, you can watch the recording and we will be sharing that on our social media, both the flyer of the Zoom reading, how you can access it and also the recording when it comes up. So we all here are manifesting the best for Dreams on Fire. Oh, uh, well, I, um, you know what? I had my my uh, page up, so I wasn't even, goodness, I'm looking at my, yeah, don't put it visual on here because I'm, I'm, my hair is undone. But um, <laughs> uh, I was saying that uh, this, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, as Miller told me tw uh, 30, 40 years ago, the road to getting anything produced is, is a difficult one. And if he's saying that with his stature, you can only imagine what it's like for someone who's unknown. So, yeah. Well, I think it's nice to have Miller, you know, his words uh, conclude the interview. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jan. Thank you so much. And um I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.